Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, Matthew here, with a quick note before we get started. As you know, Scaffold is supported by the Architecture Foundation, a London-based nonprofit that produces events, exhibitions, films, and books that spark debate about the built environment in London and abroad. What you might not know is that the Architecture Foundation has an app. It's called the London Architecture Guide. Launched in partnership with Brockton Capital, it's one of the AF's most ambitious projects to date, a free guide to the architecture of London, incorporating over a thousand of the city's most remarkable buildings from Roman times to the present day. The app is based on an acclaimed book by architectural writers Edward Jones and Christopher Woodward, and includes an ever-expanding set of entries, photography, walking directions, and event listings. Thanks to the generous support of Brockton Capital, the app is free to download for everyone. Whether you're visiting London for the first time, discovering new buildings, or getting to know your own neighborhood, this is the app to help you explore London's stunning and often hidden architectural riches. To get the download, just search for London Architecture Guide in the App Store or on Google Play, or follow the link in the show notes. All right, now onto the show. When I was in architecture school, I'd sometimes wander through the library without knowing exactly what I was looking for. I'd pull books at random, this game of roulette, waiting for a book to find me. Inside of one of those books was a project by an architect that stayed with me ever since. And it wasn't a building. Instead, it was a series of these intimate, strangely fervid accounts of the very mundane ritual of getting dressed and going out. Pictures of a man's bare chest a running bathroom faucet, a close-up shot of him drinking water from a glass. The man in the pictures was the architect Tony Fretton, and he became a kind of gateway for me into this world of ideas about architecture, not as some lofty, idealized practice, but as a practice that fondly embraces everyday life. I actually sent Fretton an email after picking up that book. This was in 2014. And we ended up speaking on Skype. It was probably my first formal interview with an architect. In a way, Fretton has become a kind of magus of British architecture. As much for the ideas he cultivated in early projects, like the 1989 Listen Gallery, as for the discourse he helped spark through his early photography work and the meetings he convened with a younger generation of architects, discussing and debating the shape of contemporary practice. At the same time, Fetton was and remains a kind of outsider in British architecture. He set out in a period dominated by both postmodernism and the high-tech movement. In this cultural moment, obsessed with both the past and future of architecture, Fretton sought out a place in the present, looking clearly at the contemporary city as a source of inspiration. I met with Tony on a sunny Sunday afternoon in August of 2023 at his home in Kentish Town. He was preparing lunch as we started the interview, which has been broken into two parts, the second of which will air next week. And now, here's part one of my interview with the architect, Tony Fretton. I hope you enjoy it. 
So this is on. I'm just going to clip it to your apron. Oh, well, not to my apron, so I'll take that off. Okay. We'll do this. You could leave it on. I'll do it to your shirt here. Yeah, to your shirt. Okay. Are we good? We're good. And just uh-huh. triple check. And if you just say a few more words. Um, um, soft, what light in yonder window breaks? Um, I can do... Um, Shall I compare these to the Summer's Day in Dutch, more or less? Find ich jaus and Summer's Dag somewhere. Ne lieflicher moyer ben. I can't remember. You're an avid reader of poetry. Uh, I wouldn't say avid, but I, I suppose I read it every day. Um, I read it to Inga. You know, we have a thing that we do at the end of our conversation. Like, How hungry are you? Are you very aura? Um, yeah, pretty hungry. Undercooked, but overcooking is boring too. But anyway, um, I tend to read the poetry that I've read for a long time, which is not not great. I mean, I, I'm not up to date with poetry that's being written now. Um, but Auden is a fantastic poet, I think. So why why Auden for you? Well, because Auden somehow, first of all, there's political sense and a sense of his times. Um, in the poems that I like. There's a great one of, um, in memory of W.B. Yeats. Uh, it says, um, I don't know, what is it? Is it, um, the words of a dead man are modified in the guts of the living? Absolutely, yeah. Or it says, um, uh, something like, um, Ireland has its poetry and its weather still because poetry makes nothing happen. It's just a ser- series of wonderful. Mm-hmm. Uh, assemblies of words that I just love. I can read and read and read them. Mm-hmm. But Inga likes being read the same thing again and again. If I, I often read them, Andy Warhol's diaries, which are funny. You know, mm. we've read them about four times now. But, um, That's interesting. There's a kind of uselessness to the observations I imagine of someone like Warhol. They're almost ironic in their fixation on the banal, the trivial. Maybe with Auden, but certainly with Warhol. To me, there's a kind of bathos at play, this word which means this kind of sharp contrast between the sublime and the trivial. (coughs) If we think about the Campbell's soup cans or the multiple iterations of celebrity portraiture, the elevation of the popular to the highbrow and back again. Mm-hmm. There's something in that that seems to rhyme with your work or your your attitude in a way. Oh no. <laughs> well that's the thought. Yeah. I mean I don't dismiss it by any means. Um I'm kinda curious to to stay with this thread for a bit. You're a prolific poster on Instagram and I think back in 2016, actually, some of your cell phone shots, some of your mobile shots were exhibited at Betts Gallery. True, that's true. And all of these pictures are, to me, sort of in line with this, um, or they walk this fine line between exposing something that is elevated and sublime in our environment, our urban environment, and something that is totally 
trivial and banal. And it kind of... Nothing is trivial. Nothing is banal. Everything is purposeful. You know, the people that make their street, or make a, a bollard, you know, or put a handprint on the bollard, um, with varying degrees of um, intensity, are, are doing something. You know, they're, they're taking their life, the days of their life, to do something, and you have to honor that. That's why I'm rather, let's say, I, the, the term the everyday, which has been around for a while, and which I suppose is sometimes directed to the Smithsons. But I don't think that's accurate. I think it closes down thinking about um, the world of objects. And, and the object making is what, what I do. No, I got it. Object making is is what I do, and interrogating objects through photographs lets me continue to understand their life and, and how they might affect people, mm. how they create the environments in which we live. Um, so a long time ago, you made a series of photographs of bus shelters. Yeah. yeah. For this very reason. Yeah that in these anonymous structures there is an awareness and respect for their authorship still? Somebody spent their time, somebody created that, you know, made a decision. And um, well, you can't just treat it as nothing, you know. I just want to read back to you something you wrote in one of your notebooks in 1986. Yeah. Um, that doesn't seem like a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so you're writing notes to yourself. I think this is a sketchbook for the Listen Gallery and Mute Records. Yeah. And you're saying, there's kind of four points on the page I can show you. Yeah. So one, I photographed the building today. Yeah. Two, I photographed it like a performance. Everything I saw became important. Yeah. Three, I didn't filter it for architectural possibilities. Mm-hmm. I wore a suit as I photographed. It changed my attitude. Mm-hmm. For the work is going to be an artwork. Five, for business reasons, the work must have a strong image. <laughs> it's funny that these notes make their way into an architect's sketchbook. Yeah. Um, why is this kind of diary, or why was it important for you? I was developing a way of thinking about architecture, and doing it, well, let's say, for that project. Um, So it was important for me to know what I was doing, or the way I worked required that I, I wrote, or was explicit about my method rather than just doing it. How's the spaghetti? All right, needs a bit more lemon. Um, I think I can't see. I can't do that anymore, and that's going to be the for me one of the hearts of the of the interview. Mm-hmm. Why can't I do that anymore? And how did the work change when it had to deal with real issues of practice and maintaining a business? They're very important issues.
and that's what I'd like to get to eventually. But at that stage, I was finding out, well, I was knowing, I wasn't finding out, I was knowing what what I was thinking. And um, it was very, very potent for me. All those things that I wrote, I actually felt they weren't just writing, you know, they were things that I actually did. Mm. And so that's... What's, what's interesting and exciting to me, yes. I'll let you do that. Yes, I was just grinding. Parmesan. Grinding the parmesan, yeah. mixing it into the pasta. So it's oh, lemon, juice, salt, parmesan. A bit, bit of everything. Um, there needs to be more parmesan. And I made too much spaghetti, so... Um, well, we'll see. You have to say it's good, whether you like it or not. <laughs> Otherwise I'll be devastated. Um, uh, sorry. I can't... What did they say about Gerald Ford? He couldn't talk about architecture and grind parmesan at the same time. <laughs> that's precisely what's happening right now. Yeah, that's precisely what's happening. Um, um, so no. what was so exciting to me in seeing the sketchbook, yeah. full of words, yeah. is that language is, um, is a design medium in a way. Yeah. That there's a kind of reflexivity afforded through language that is productive for the designer. Yeah. That you were aware of at the time when you were making those notes. Yeah. And there's also, to me, a sense of a kind of delirium of possibility that comes along with youth, actually. And it seems like it's that, that kind of alertness and awareness that you were bringing to the early work that was so exciting to you, an early audience of it as well. Yeah. I, I mean, I felt that. I felt, well... I, I knew I was doing something new, but I didn't know whether it mattered, you know. I didn't have a sense of audience, which if I'd been a slightly more aware, I would have had. And, you know, the people like Herzog and Dunrod projected that aspect of their practice much more um, carefully, and therefore they made a reputation being kind of stupid. I kept it to myself, you know. I think before before we get to the strategy or lack thereof, I want to focus more on what that new thing was or what it might have been. Mm-hmm. And in the beginning of this book of collected writing of yours, it was published in 2017 called AEIOU, yeah. uh, which stands for Articles, Essays, Interviews, and Outtakes. Yeah. You begin with this page or spread called the same thing said four times yes <laughs> which i think is you trying to look back and make sense of what this what this central obsession was of yours and it seems like it had a lot to do with this idea of working in the space between art and life that's that's what Robert Rauschenberg described, and um, that's I'd, that's what I quote. Mm-hmm. It's exactly a quotation from Robert Rauschenberg, which I like very much. It had um, great significance to me. Um, so, as a young architect, following the work of artists like Chris Burden, Dan Graham, uh, Robert Morris, how how did you start to 
participate, um, or what did you learn from those kinds of artists and their work? Uh, with with um, Dan, it was about the, let's say, the vividness of his experience, how he marshaled his experience into a, a way of working, or a way of thinking, not a way of working. Um, that really interested me. Um, and then the, the things that he made, the pavilions, which I must admit at first, I, I, didn't, I didn't understand them. And, and then Nicholas Logdale, the director of the Listening Gallery, said, give them time, or words to the effect, which I did. And suddenly they made a huge amount of sense. I mean, physic as physical objects, they, they're, some of the pavilions are mystifying. It's like seeing an experiment in physics that you can't quite believe is happening before your eyes. Um, mm. So, but also, with Dan, there was a man who had not, didn't have the star presence of an artist. He wasn't Donald Judd or, you know, he, he was, uh, he made art and he made a living somewhere, somehow, you know, and he didn't, he didn't um, confuse the two. Um, and he's not, he didn't live opulently. I'm just going to read, sorry, I'm just going to read yeah. this to a shirt. The apron is off. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Eating begins. Um, no, Dan lived an ordinary life, and I, I, more and more I understand that, that foolishly for these times, that's what I wanted to do. I didn't, yeah, I wasn't um, thinking of becoming a, celebrity. I just wanted to make work and that's different. You know, and looking back I, I understand how people like Herzog and Dumeran really understood their times much better. They were able to project themselves as persons. Thank you. And it's important. I mean you you know I used to be rather dismayed by it, but one thing you learn is that you don't win work by talent. You really don't. And there are lots of quite legitimate reasons for that. And if you're naive enough to think that you would, which is what I did in the beginning, you struggle to make a living. Now it's okay to live in a bohemian way at the beginning of your career as I did when I was writing those notes that you mentioned but after a certain point you, you can't convince clients from that position you have to become more substantial you know you have to learn skills of presentation and things like that and that affects the work you do because you that work I did was some um, mute was never built the listen was built. Um, this is Mute Records, which yeah. is a, a celebrated, unbuilt early work of yours. Mm. So this seems like a major regret in a way. This naivete or innocence around faith in, in talent or enthusiasm alone. <laughs> 
as, a, as the engine of a practice, when in fact, what it sounds like you're saying is, you wished you'd had another face to wear. Uh, I don't, you don't have that option. You know, you are what you are and you have capabilities and some are, are very strong and others are absent. And <clears throat> so I don't want this to seem as though I've lived a life of regret. I haven't, I mean, most of the time I'd say, even through the embassy in the Red House, I've done what I wanted to do, what I believed in as an architect. <clears throat> so I shouldn't, I don't want to collapse these thoughts into simple mm -hmm. regret and say that um, having your ob obligations and responsibilities running an office um, diminishes your thoughtfulness. Mm -hmm. That's not true. I mean, many architects will disprove that. And it didn't for us, but it um, it does something. You know, people, when I showed the Red House in, where was I, Mendrisio, I think, people said, oh, you've become a neoclassicist. And I said, well, no, I don't think so. Um, and people were mystified by it. Was it postmodern? You know, was it a retreat into classicism? But well, it was, I'd say, it was largely designed instinctively or intuitively. I want to go back for a moment um, and just trace this line through of this concern for the other languages that the architect ought to speak in order to gain a certain kind of work or work at a certain kind of scale. And instead the language that you've cultivated, which is in a way much more innocent, uh, we could even say pure in a way, in its faithfulness to this pursuit for a conflation between art and life. No. And I mean, you bring up the Red House. This is a private commission for an enlightened client. Yeah. Um, is it Alex Sainsbury? Yeah. So that's a certain type of work, commission of a private house, yeah. uh, where you have quite a wide berth to um, explore new ideas and <coughs> in a way reinvent your practice, which uh, in some ways is what seems to have happened with that project. You're talking about a shift towards a certain kind of respect for acknowledgement of historical forms. That aside though, the other kinds of work that wasn't happening during that period, include projects like Walsall, yeah. include projects like the Laban Center, mm. projects like the VNA. Mm. These are all competitions you entered yeah. and didn't win. And in a way, mm. there's a sense that you deserve them all. <laughs> and that some, there's, but somehow the atmosphere or the 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 environment of London was rejecting you in a way. Does that ring true to you? Or well, it can feel like that, but <coughs> in a way that's not a useful feeling. You have to find a way to not be a victim. Here, let me get you some, some, some juice. Um, but, yeah, to me there's a kind of... There's a... 
there's a melancholy there in the way that the city is unable to sustain the kind of idealism that your practice was emblematic of. Yeah, that's true. When we worked in Belgium and Holland, people don't try and interfere in design. They hire good architects and let them do what they do. And here it's very different. You know, there's, uh, there's much more social pressure that you, the architects have to deal with. Um, I think, I mean, to go back to the question of why we didn't succeed in those projects, which would have been wonderful, we didn't present well. I happened to meet a long time after we submitted for competition to make the cafe for the British Film Institute that was run by um, Komodi Grark, with a scheme that, that they say was very similar to ours in its configuration. And one of the persons who was on the jury, who I happened to meet a long time later, and said, reintroduced herself and said, what was distinct about how I presented is I didn't try and please the client, I just showed the efficacy of the architecture and what it did. And that's, look, other people would know that you have to sell, you know, in a way. And I, I can do that a bit better now, but I thought the clarity of the work would convince, you know, but it doesn't work that way. People can't accept that. But I mean, to win competitions now, you have to have an element of surprise and glamour, you know, before anything. You, what we find is that, that approaching a competition by meticulously devising a form from the requirements of a program and making great spaces and making a social object doesn't doesn't win you competitions you know you win competitions through some I think through some apparent special character and everything else I think they expect architects to be able to fix it somehow you know so in the V&A courtyard Amanda won it by this <coughs> particularly bright and um, plastic treatment of the courtyard and everything else, everything else was subsidiary to that, including the, let's say, the generality of the exhibition space and things like that. You ate your spaghetti. I didn't see how you did it. <laughs> I looked and there was a plate for spaghetti. I looked again, it was empty. But no, the reason I bring these You didn't tip it into your bag to be left <laughs> <laughs> in the flower pot. No, I, I savoured it. It was delicious. But the, the reason I bring these projects up yeah. um, is because to me it underscores this tension between celebrity and authenticity that I imagine any architect um, yes. struggles with. Yeah. Any architect that aspires to, be, um, to work at a certain scale or have a certain influence. Um, and I think in in being denied the way you have been in this city, in this country. Oddly, what it's done is it's preserved a certain kind of rarefied valence to the, to the office. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> that it still is universally adored and admired amongst architects. I think for... If only they knew the natural <laughs> truth. <laughs> Exactly, there's a kind of, um, for its unrealized potential. 
Yeah. It feels a lot like poetry in a way that, um, to me, a good poem only hints towards the possible but never brings you right to it. Mm-hmm. Because to articulate it too clearly is to dissolve its yeah, absolutely. mystery. And it's a form of ambiguity. Which uh-huh. So the practice as a whole remains ambiguous because mm. it's been thwarted. It's a kind of flower that's always just about to bloom. <laughs> well, let me say this. I mean, we have had our wins. We won the embassy, which is no small achievement. And that was in a, <clears throat> a really crowded field. Um, and uh, we won Fulsang in a, in a you know, and at the... This is the museum in Denmark. Hmm. And we won the towers. I mean, we've, we've succeeded. Mm-hmm. And we haven't had what a lot of talented architects have of very small projects, a life of small projects. We haven't had that. You know, if we look at, if you look at the website, I mean, it's got substantial built work in it. And, mm. um, so, you, you know, you win some of them and you lose some of them. A friend of mine a long time ago said that he'd sacrifice half of the buildings that he'd succeeded in winning in competition for the ones that he lost what he really wanted you know and you what I what I I mean I used to when we lost a competition I'd, I'd feel uh, dreadful and angry for weeks and I made a rule um, you might want to put some dressing on that um, I made a rule that um, if it was an important competition I'd give myself a week to get over it and if it was less important, I give myself a day to get over it, and I do now. You can't, you can't feel injured, you must not, it's bad for your being, you have to keep thinking how could we succeed. You know, if you, to look at the sensibility that you described in the early days that I wrote about, about mute and things like that, you couldn't run a practice on that you couldn't say to a client, you couldn't say those things to a client and expect them to give you a building. They, they probably wouldn't, you know, what you have to do in the same way as when you yourself want to hire a doctor or, or a lawyer is to feel confidence in them, confidence and creativity. So you have to have, you have to have some professional skills, you know, and we've acquired them, I mean, mainly through uh, my partner Jim McKinney and David Owen, who've got real substantial skills in understanding legislation, financial management, fees, uh, handling clients, um, uh, shaping a project according to legislation, and then opening it for me to to make magic with, which I do. I couldn't have done that on my own. You know, I, I until Jim came around twenty years ago, I was reading the Red House. It was <clears throat> it was a sort of bohemian practice. You know, I had very little idea of how much we were earning and how much our outgoings were. Mm. I mean, there was an amusing thing. I was working with a group of I thought very pleasurable and talented colleagues, and I said, um, "Some of you are better things than I am. Better at certain things than I am." So. Uh, one of the colleagues, I said, why don't you look at the finances? And I can't remember what I asked Jim to do, but um, and this 
colleague looked, she said, I've looked at your bank statements and there's two things. First, you have to separate your personal account and your business account. And secondly, you're earning more money than you know and we should have a pay rise. And I said, oh, let's do that. You know, so <laughs> it worked, you know, trusting other people worked. <coughs> and with Jim, we were, I was looking for, I knew I needed associates. I needed people who had um, job running skills, which I, I did and I didn't. I didn't have good enough job running skills. And um, here we were interviewing people and I didn't feel much for the people that were coming. And I said to Jim, um, what do you think of those people? He said, not very much. And I said, well, why don't you, and this is, how, bah how bohemian is this? I said, why don't you, why don't you be my partner? And he looked strangely at me and I said, yeah, you could do it. Which he did, in fact. And um, the next day we said, Jim's a partner now. And everybody went, what? You know. So it, in a curious way, my intuitions went somewhere. Mm. Mm. Um, but if I'd been a bit more um, thoughtful, they might have gone further. It's funny, this term bohemian, which you've used to describe your stance towards learning as well. I think in an interview with Irene Scalbert from 2000 or 2001, you're talking about your education and saying that you always make things and then figure them out afterwards. To you, this... I said that to him. Yeah, the, to you, this constituted a bohemian stance towards learning and that you admired good scholarship in other people, but your approach was always more ad hoc somehow or improvised. Well, there's a, a structure behind that, that way of thinking, although it's an intuitive structure, but there is a structure. Can we talk more about your education? Should we? Why don't you eat that salad? more salad first. <laughs> we could, it was a long time ago. Mm -hmm. It was at the AA, so, you know, pick your bones out of that. So you were, yeah, you studied at the AA from 1966 to yep. 1972. Oh. And I found your thesis project. Did you? Yeah. It's not bad, is it? And just for listeners who probably haven't seen it or heard of it, you are reimagining the future of the AA. You're redesigning yeah. the institution. I was looking for a final year project, a so-called thesis project. And James Gowan, my teacher, more of him later, um, suggested that I take the brief and site. I mean, a very useful suggestion. But you saw it. What was your feeling for it? I, I just, there was more written description than there was imagery. But what to me was telling about the project was, in the first instance, the decision as a student to choose a school of architecture as a project. That there's a kind of reflexivity and investment and enthusiasm for architectural discourse it doesn't have it doesn't have the AA library which is beautiful and it doesn't have the AA members room it has no rooms where celebrated activity takes place it's a mechanism mm. and it's its aim is to be as 
open to adaption and use in different ways as possible. So there's no, there isn't any um, architectural discourse in it. It's much more like, um, well, I don't know, Jean Prouvé or someone like that. You know, it's very different from what you're thinking. So I think more it's to do with the very act of taking on the program of the school. But you're right, there is a real emphasis on functionalism. But don't, let me just add something that, that my experience in the AA was of um, a wonderful place to be, irrespective of the rooms that I've mentioned, but um, back staircase and things like that. And um, the oddity of it being a conversion meant there were places you could go and not be with anybody, you know, or you could go back into the studio when we worked, we worked in studio in first year. And, <clears throat> the character of the room and <coughs> the things that happened in it, you know, when we, and I was there, lots of music was made in the studios and things like that, you know, mm. and um, people brought their electric guitar in and it, it was when all of that was happening in the mid 60s. So it wasn't about the architectural discourse, which I was, in a way I was oblivious to it, it was about, um, what it felt like to be a student and how could that be, uh, how could that be allowed to happen? I mean, it, it, thinking about it now, it's, it's um, answers are very narrow, you know, it, was, it wasn't a real school of architecture, it was an experiment in um, how Berlin could be adapted. When you talk about the goings-on at the school in the 60s, the fact that music's being made, things are happening, there are happenings unfolding in the school. Um, And a spirit so aligned with that moment in time, the zeitgeist of the 60s and the counterculture. Um, And it seems like a kind of cultural moment that necessitates iconoclasm or celebrates a kind of thinking against the grain. We didn't think like that. We thought we were doing, uh, we thought good things were being done. You know, uh, Buckminster Fuller came and spoke frequently in London and and we built domes and things like that. Um, mm-hmm. It was very positive. I mean, don't forget that the architecture that one saw was quite recent um, social housing. Uh, not um, uh, Alexander Road, which was built later, but um, Serious housing schemes and people like Patrick Hodgkinson at the AA were, um, when they graduated, they were sought after, he was sought after because of his um, advances in housing. So, on the one hand, we had that, you know, which was admirable. We weren't pushing against that. It's just that there was this, um, first of all, it was a very hedonistic period, and, you know, that everything felt like it was good. But also, um, there could be, um, there was the beginnings of uh, uh, an ecological um, awareness. There were people who were graduating making um, reusable showers and things like that. So all this stuff that's happening now was happening then. Mm-hmm. And um, so it, we felt, one felt, that you were, uh, you could contribute to all of this you know, in the real world. I mean, it's a fiction because you weren't. Um, but. That was the feeling. There was an awareness of, of the past, but it was all material and experiential. There, 
mean, there were people who were talking theoretically, but I didn't participate in that. That wasn't what was interesting. Um, it's an interest in material culture yeah. and the knowledge embedded in material things. Yes. Yeah. I mean, elsewhere, I think more recently, when you talk about the way you think about design, yeah. the way you work as an architect, and the kind of source material for your mm -hmm. projects. Mm -hmm. You've explained that you look at the clothes you wear, the people you love, and how you conduct yourself in the world of objects and gestures. Mm -hmm. Those are all resources for making buildings. Yeah. Well, I, what, what I wanted to say was that 10 years after, this, in 1976, by which time I graduated and was beginning to make the, the early projects that you mentioned, London was completely different. It wasn't opulent, it was poor. And punk arrived, you know, it was punk was a, what would you say, one that accepted the nihilism of, um, of the state of London. It's all those songs by the Sex Pistols, which I just played this morning, in fact. Um, are, and they rang true, they weren't just inventions, you know, it was social commentary and punk was really important to me. I mean, I hung in the punk scene, I was a bit odd to do that, but I did and it, what struck me was that um, punks had a, they were ethical, you know, they had an idea of the world and, um, and it was about make and mend and about living in squats, it was about living in the margins, and so that uh, appeal in, to those people of marginal um, material and things that had had previous uses was really, I'd say, the background in which I developed the thoughts that you described at the beginning of this lecture. So there was a massive change from in that ten years, and that that in the mid seventies was when that sensibility, which eventually produced the Listening Gallery through my contact with artists and things like that. Um, that's how that happened. It didn't come from 60s optimism, that all went away. Mm. I mean, I remember working in, I worked in a commercial office, I worked in Chapman Taylor's and there was a recession and you couldn't get work so I worked in a, and we, we saw postmodernism come in the door, you know, we saw it come in the door and um, it was shameful in a way because people like um, Robert Venturi's writing was wonderful. Uh, I hadn't reread it, and I'd have to know if I still thought it was wonderful. But but the early work that he made was, I thought, very punk. You know, it fitted with this sensibility that that I was was developing inside me. Mm -hmm. And then very very quickly, it became a sort of creature of the establishment. You know, in the, the nastiest possible way. And, and theory was written for it, which... Uh, but we had, interestingly, yeah, we had Charles Jenks, as a um, history and theory lecturer, who introduced all of this. So postmodernism, in a way, was released from its tube, you know, of, of Bacillus. And, um, and the modernism that we admired suddenly was um, attacked. There was a certain... Let's say the social project went, and um, the and that was 
it wasn't replaced by anything else. It was replaced by a world of sensation and ideas, which, which I also inhabited. You know, the the things that you described at the beginning of this of this interview that that comes from a, that it wasn't an architecture of necessity anymore. Anymore, it was an architecture of of um, being. You might say, sorry, this is not being very clear, but it's no. A, but I think I mean, <clears throat> what's happening in a way is you are situating mm. um, your position at the time yeah. between, on the one hand, postmodernism, this kind of florid collaging of historical forms. Yes. And then on the other, which I feel like you're about to get to, huh? is this interest in futurism, high-tech people like Rogers or Zaha. Yeah. So you're between these two poles in a way, as a student or a young practitioner, um, but maintain an adherence to a certain kind of modernism. I was, I may have been between them, but I wasn't aware of that. I didn't. I mean, I felt insignificant as a designer, like all people who've graduated and haven't established a practice in the proper sense of the word. I didn't feel any competition with those people. They. Some more yeah, water um, no, I'm okay, thank you. Um, I mean, I was living in my own dream world, you know, dreaming away, <laughs> happily dreaming away. Um, I used to, I mean, it's not true, I used to, um, I used to say that the comparison between what I and early Sergius and Bates did by way of work was that similar to the way that... <coughs> punk appeared where you would in 1975 <coughs> you'd go to a gig and a huge band would appear with thousand pounds worth of equipment and then two years later punks would appear with nothing you know with Woolworths guitars and um we were a bit like that you know if um if Foster was burning in steel and glass we were burning in wood and brick, you know, um, we were doing all the things that they didn't want to do. So, I mean, this is obviously easier retrospectively to look back and find this, this kind of fringe position you're in. Um, but at the time, obviously you're embedded, you're immersed in, in what's going on and it's much more difficult to articulate a position or find a voice. But you were still trying to do that. There was still this attempt at articulating, which manifests in a form of a, a group you organized yeah. called Papers on Architecture, which would meet, I think, once a week. And this included the likes of, you mentioned Jonathan Sergison and Stephen Bates, also Adam Caruso and Peter Sinjin, Jonathan Wolf and David Adjaye. Mark Pimlot. And Mark Pimlot. Hiracha Iso, they were probably the most important people in that group. Could you tell me about the formation of the group and what what came out of it? Well, I hope I'm right in this, but it seemed <coughs> that we thought there was an absence of practitioners writing, you know, expounding on the basis of making their architecture which we last saw 
in the 50s with Architectural Review, which had substantial critics writing for it, who wrote critically. And that doesn't happen anymore. It's much more laudatory. Um, and practitioners themselves being capable writers. You know, Peter Smithson's a wonderful writer. I reread him and he's an exceptionally interesting thinker. And we we wondered if we could do something like that. And so we wrote and and gave you know red papers to each other. But it it didn't it sort of blew up in a way. There was also Diana Periton was part of it, so And sorry, who was that? Diana's become an historian. Um, I think was teaching at Glasgow. No, I don't know what she's teaching at, but she was she was also working at um, 9H. But we we tried this and we did write some papers. Um, but one thing I think I've learned about the UK is that it's not very collegial. I've kind of given up trying to form groups. They always fail and um, I always get disappointed. And and that was very disappointing. There were pressures in it that that I, I don't really want to describe, but it became, for me, it became unpleasant. I had to leave. Well, it didn't carry on after that. I mean, from what I gather, the the outputs of the group are either scant or lost to time or immaterial if they were on recorded conversations. And yet it's been a helpful event or instance um, that people like me can lean on to start to articulate a certain formation of an attitude or sensibility. Um, So it's a device in a way. And I mean, speaking with some members of the group, um, it seems, or having spoken with some members of the group, it seems the real discussion or debates uh, were to be had in the work that was done subsequently by the individuals in the group, in the competitions that were made, um, and in the conversations that were had you know, beyond these weekly meetings. But what helpfully did come out of it was um, kind of organizing term or idea for who these people were. So again, in this kind of in this kind of um, outsider position, outside of the dominant tendencies of the time, uh, people started referring to this group as the Whisperers. Which I object to very deeply. I think it's a horribly condescending thing. It's the kind of thing that writers do. Mm. And I have big problems with writers because they sit on the periphery of events and they kind of suggest words like minimalists and and they don't, it's totally self-serving. Mm. I mean, it, we weren't kind of normal human beings, you know. There were serious discussions, there was an intent to... <coughs> I think what... I don't know if it was felt by the group, but it seemed, in retrospect, that, they, that each of us was significant in British architecture. <coughs> we were in London, we'd worked... We had a certain similarity of approach, and it seemed very legitimate to have a, a literature come from that. 
and you know the history of architecture is made better by the fact that uh, things like that happen but they didn't happen here I mean what happened is that that uh, each of us or not every one of us but some of us went off and took professorial positions in Europe where we had to write so it was re it was revealed in a more promising the more promising um, situation of Europe where an academically uh, inclined practitioner is valued it, that's what a professor should be in a mm. in ETH or TU Delft not here I mean you have to understand that, that there's very little demand for that very little scope for architects to be like that here and that's why we're not here that's why we're there I want to stay with this process of self-formation or this these early kind of strivings towards a voice which presumably also took place in in the school in the AA where you were studying with James Gowan well James allowed me to think in a certain kind of way whereby I could understand that a voice within a practice <coughs> mattered and before that you I just made one thing after another and James showed that architects could architects who were concerned not with writing but concerned with making things could also be intellectuals I mean James was phenomenal and I've said a lot about James which I won't reiterate here but first of all he was some indiscriminate in his attitude to students James accepted everybody and um, that um, and then he worked with them he worked with whatever they produced now that's an attitude that I respect that's what I took from his teaching <clears throat> and I think in some people's minds certainly in where I teach right now in certain people's minds they think I'm indiscriminate that I'm not judgmental enough um, but I happen to think that that socially is the proper thing to accept that people have different ambitions from you and different talents you teach you find out if you can what would be valuable to a student whatever their end trajectory is it doesn't always work out I mean I have students that I've taught very carefully and they've become project managers because they make more money you know because the world that we're in makes it only possible to buy a house and have a family if you earn more money so they've abandoned their interest in architecture um, except that they facilitate it um, but to go back to what I was saying you try to find basic skills basic design skills that you can teach and one of them is to show a student how they can take their ideas without destroying them by doubt and breathe life into them and see their potential to be something good and I had another student she was I think she was going through a process of wondering if she wanted to be an architect she said that I asked her what she was going to do when she graduated and she said I don't even know if I'm going to be an architect and I said but if you learn to have an idea to find out how you can develop it and see whether it's good or not that's valuable in anything you might do in any in any kind of work you might do other than let's say mundane work if you're in in the lead in some way whatever uh, practice you're in whatever type of 
enterprise you're in, that must be valuable to learn creative thinking and the development of creative thinking. So that's that's the core of what I teach. And for some people, I, I have a suspicion they think it's just indiscriminate and not good enough. And mm. you know the values of the school are being traduced. And but I don't care. I, mean, I just don't care. I'm going to do this until I don't do it anymore. It's a continuation of that idea that everything matters or everything is important. We have to understand that we're in a, uh, we have a form of capitalism on us. It separates people into successful and unsuccessful, worthy and unworthy. That's what capitalism in its current form does. Superstars make all other architects feel inferior. You know, that, that's the effect of, and that's a really bad and punishing thing to do. And I will not do it. You know, every time I talk, when, you know, I was in Edinburgh some time ago and somebody said something, I can't remember what it was about reputation, and I said, I'm, I am anti-superstar, I'm anti-that. I am like you, everybody in this room who tries to do something is important, you know. And that's, you know, somebody designing a bus shelter, somebody designing a, a, a low-energy home in, in the south of England without, you know, living a modest suburban life. They're important, really important. You know, the fabric of architecture isn't made by, by superstars. It's made by lots of people of varying skills. And if you can, if you can work there, if you can work there, if you can work with people at that level, that's as a as a social democrat. That's what I should do. You know, that's very important for me. Mm. And most people, a lot of people who teach, don't know why they're teaching. You know, and they sometimes they're just exercising their ego. They're producing students that that mirror their own practices um, and do their kind of speculative work for them that they can't do in the office because they're doing big commercial projects, you know. Mm -hmm. And it's, it, I, you know, that's all right, that's fine. You learn something from that, being near people like that. And, you know, in ETH there were plenty of studios which, um, um, where you did the work of a master and you learn something from that. You learn a certain intensity um, so I don't deny it but in a way I'm backing my own rather <laughs> more socially oriented position mm. but then why not pursue that kind of work mm. the more anonymous or banal schemes <coughs> mass housing well otherwise you wouldn't I mean you need to find work which has the capability to say something, you know, for me, I've said this lots of times, that architecture has two polarities in my mind. One is <coughs> satisfaction of that, that people need when they inhabit somewhere, which involves not just good planning, although that's very powerful, but it involves pleasure. You know, the sun comes in the window at a certain time of day, you look out of your bedroom window and there's a tree. These things are important. and. Um, on the one hand, it needs to do that. On the other hand, it has a duty to recognise its role in the development of the visual culture. You know, I mean, that's what architecture is the most ubiquitous creative form. It's, buildings are everywhere. I mean, it's probably 
challenged now by um, video and things like that, but um, on a mundane level, on a day-to-day -day basis, buildings have enormous power. Scaffold is a podcast from the Architecture Foundation. I'm Matthew Bunderfield and I produce the show. The theme music is composed and performed by Luke Blair. Subscribe to Scaffold on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at scaffold underscore podcast. If you like the show, spread the word and leave a rating on iTunes. Thanks to Tony Fretton. Special thanks this week to David Owen, Irene Scalbert, Peter Sinjin, and Ellis Woodman. Thanks as always to Scandal Lynn, and thanks to you for listening. I'll be back next week with the second part of Tony's interview. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.